Good morning. If you guys have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We are going to start a new series this morning. I know some of y'all were back last week, and there are more of you back this week. We're glad to have you back. We're going to be starting a new series this semester. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the tougher questions surrounding the Christian faith, and uh, there'll be all kinds of questions that we'll look at from theological questions, philosophical questions, social questions, moral questions. We'll talk about uh, issues such as the reliability of the Bible, but also uh, social and moral questions like ethics of life, abortion, euthanasia, war, some of those sort of things. So we're going to cover a lot of ground this semester and kind of take on a different question every week. We won't necessarily answer all of them exhaustively. Hopefully we'll be able to point you to some resources as we go along that will help answer and uh, deal with some of these questions as well. But we're just going to give an introduction to a few of these this semester and hopefully get an idea of how to think through tough questions biblically. All right, so we're going to start with John 18. This morning, I'm going to read just verses 37 and the beginning of 38 before we pray. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Would you guys pray with me? Our God, we are moved to worship you uh, by the songs that we've just sung, that you, Jesus, our Savior, paid all of our debts on the cross, that the gulf that separated us from you was bridged by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would believe that this morning. We pray that we would proclaim it. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you would have to say to us uh, this morning. We pray that as we leave, we would have a greater understanding of what your truth is. I pray that you would give me clarity. Let my words be of you, not of myself. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm sure by now all of you have... Uh, heard of and perhaps followed some of the scandal that happened with Tiger Woods back in December and uh, going on into January. Uh, Of course, found in multiple extramarital affairs. Many of his sponsors dropped him from uh, sponsoring their products. And uh, it's just a devastating and a tragic combination of circumstances, largely by choices that he made. Uh, Well, in the wake of that scandal, some of you may have seen this on TV, a news commentator, a man named Britt Hume, who's been an anchor and a uh, uh, reporter and a commentator, he got on Fox News and he made some comments about Tiger Woods when he was asked to talk about Tiger Woods. I'm going to just briefly show a video to you guys of Britt Hume's remarks, and then we'll talk about it. Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer. Whether he can recover as a person, I think, is a very open question, and, we're, and it's a tragic situation with him. I think he's lost his family. It's not clear to me that whether he'll be able to have a relationship with his children. But the, but the Tiger Woods that emerges once the news value dies out of this scandal, uh, the extent to which he can recover, it seems to me, depends on his faith. He's said to be a Buddhist. I don't think that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn your faith, turn to the Christian faith, and you can make a total recovery and be a great example to the world. 
I'm very concerned about Tiger's soul, which is admirable. I, I just made a more straightforward sports <laughs> prediction, which is that he'll come back and win the Masters because, you know, he's still an awfully good golfer despite the chaos and uh, um, bad news about his personal life. All right. Well, what's interesting to watch about that video is the discomfort of the other anchors, as Brit Hume is saying that, and even the guy right after him kind of immediately trying to change the subject and move on. Now, in the wake of those comments, Brit Hume was heavily criticized by news outlets, by papers, all sorts of people. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from some blogs and some news opinion pieces about it. This guy, Tom Shales, writing for the Washington Post, wrote, It sounded a little like one of those Verizon versus AT&T commercials. Our brand is better than your brand, except that Hume was comparing two of the world's great religions, not a couple of greedy communications conglomerates. Further, is it really his job to run around trying to drum up new business? He doesn't really have the authority, does he? Unless one believes that every Christian, by mandate, must proselytize. A guy named John Farrell wrote this, that is what made Brit's comments so creepy. The self-certainty that my God is better than yours. Hume has the right to yak. People get paid to say all sorts of provocative things these days. But geez, what a stupid thing to think. And then one uh, writer writing a letter to the Washington Post says, I don't care what anyone says to publicly state that someone else's religion or spiritual beliefs are inadequate and that they should consider yours instead is just arrogant. What exactly gives anyone the right to judge? As I read all of those, it really strikes me that uh, the concept of an absolute truth that goes beyond circumstances, that goes beyond what I want to do or my preference, that's fallen on hard times. And if I presume to tell to somebody else this is true morally or spiritually or religiously rather than what you're saying, if I presume to do that, I'm called creepy or arrogant or presumptuous. All of these things that were cast out at Brit Hume. And the underlying assumption of our culture is that absolute truth in the realm of morality or ethics or religion cannot be found. It does not exist. A recent survey by George Barna reported last year that only 34% of Americans would claim that moral truth is absolute and not circumstantial. Now, interestingly, uh, of those calling themselves born-again Christians... Only about 49% say that they believe in absolute truth. All right, what that means is that uh, we could take half of this room and half of you would probably say there's no such thing as absolute truth that is undependent upon circumstances. That truth really depends upon uh, where I am, the culture I'm in, the circumstances I'm presented with. That is the predominant assumption of our culture. That absolute truth does not exist. It's fallen on hard times. We read John 18, Pilate's question, what is truth? That question is common now. How can I find what is truth? And as we start this series on hard questions, it occurred to me, I really can't answer any of the questions that we're going to have about Jesus, about the Bible, about morality. We really can't answer those if we first don't lay a foundation of, is it possible to find truth? Because my guess is that there are some of you in this room, hopefully not truly 50%, but there are some of you that you have bought into the concept that, that there either is no such thing as absolute truth, it's completely dependent on circumstances, or at the very least, uh, there may be, but it's arrogant for me to impose my belief system upon another. It's arrogant for me to tell other people what is true and what is false. All right, but what we're going to find as we walk through uh, this discussion this morning is that not only must we all grapple with truth claims, but if there is something that is true about God, about how to obtain eternal life, about how I ought to live, if there is truth in that realm, then to not share it with others is not only uh, 
the wrong perspective, but it's evil to not share it with others. Because if there really is truth and I withhold it, isn't that worse than offending somebody by making them think that I'm arrogant? If there really is a way to achieve eternal life. And what we're going to find is that not only does Christianity fall apart if we don't have truth claims, but really you can't make any statement about how somebody ought to live or what they ought to do or what they ought to believe. So we're going to talk about the concept of absolute truth for a few minutes this morning. Does it exist? If it exists, how should we respond to it? First thing that we're going to see, and this is both from the scripture and just from our culture, is this. The concept of truth is under attack. Concept of truth is under attack. I've seen an escalation throughout my life in the perspective that our culture holds that is averse to the concept of absolute truth. Jean Twinge, an author, writes this in her book, Generation Me. She says, compared to boomers, baby boomers in 1973, Gen Me, that's uh, those that are currently in their 20s and 30s, Gen Me is twice as likely to agree with the statement, there is no single right way to live. Young people say that the most important quality a child can learn is to think for himself or herself, and only half as many young people as old say that obedience is a good lesson for children. All right? Now, it's easy to say obedience is not a good lesson for children until you have children, right? Then you want them to obey. And her point is this, that our generation, your generation and my generation has made a decision that it's more important for me to do what I want, to do what makes me happy, than it is to believe in some sort of external standard that guides my life. I believe what's happened is that the concept of truth has been substituted for the concept of preference. Look at it this way. Uh, Many of you perhaps are fans of Spoon's yogurt, right? Some of you guys like Spoon's. Okay, I love Spoon's. I see y'all in there. I know I see the gigantic cup and you fill it all the way to the top, right? Because it's low-fat yogurt, so you can get three times as much of it as you would ice cream. And you cover it with gummy bears and sprinkles and Reese's peanut butter cups, and it's still a healthy snack, right? So I love, I love spoons. I go in there, I, I go in there with my daughters and with my wife and my kids, and I love the place. Now let's imagine that we're in there and we all have different kinds of yogurt. Fifteen of us go in there and we all get different kinds, and we begin to argue about which one is the best. Right? And I say my my tart yogurt with every possible topping imaginable is the best. My wife says the cake batter one with just one or two toppings is the best. How do we decide which is the best? Right? I would argue it's mine, right? Because I have more in mine. But she says you can't taste that many things. I say, au contraire, I can. I taste every (laughs) single one of them, right? And we could go back and forth for hours like this. How do we determine who's right? Right? You really ultimately cannot, right? Because what kind of yogurt you get is a matter of personal preference, Right? There is no right yogurt to eat. On the other hand, if I uh, begin experiencing chest pains and I seek medical advice and one doctor believes that I'm having a heart attack and another one believes that I just ate a bad burrito, that's going to result in two dramatically different treatment protocols, isn't it? And it's not enough just to say, well, maybe you both have just a, a part of what's going on. So we really shouldn't make any judgments on what's correct, right? How can they treat me if they make no judgments on what's correct? And if they treat me according to the wrong one, I could die, right? And so there are certain areas in which it is okay to say this is a preference, and there are certain areas in which we must say there is true and there is false, and I think what's happened is in the area of religion, we have bought into, our, in our culture, we have bought into the idea that religion is simply a matter of preference, 
Right? And, and the question is, how did we get here? I want to trace for you guys, just for a minute, a little bit of the history of epistemology or how we think about things. Now, bear with me for just a minute. This is going to feel a little bit like a history class for a moment. But I want to, just so you guys know where we are as a culture, if you go back five or 600 years, you would find that most people held to an understanding of knowledge that would be called pre-modern. And what they would say is this, that truth is found in revelation, especially in Western culture. They would say most people understood what truth is uh, by revelation, that is by reading the scriptures. And they would say our knowledge is a subset of God's knowledge. And we know what we know because God has shown it to us. And so most people, especially in Western culture, believed that God was existed and was somewhat active in the world, and our knowledge was a subset of his. Now, obviously, this could have problems, right? One of the problems is if I believe that everything, that there are no processes by which the world works, that God is always in every instance directly intervening, then I might begin to believe like they did, that there is a demon or a fairy behind every bush. What also might happen is that if a person disagrees with me, I might assume that it's okay to burn them to death. And that happened a lot. But the reality is five or 600 years ago, most of the world held to this idea that we know what we know because God has told it to us in every arena of life. Now, what happened late 16th century, early 17th century, there was a shift in the way people began to think to what's called a modern viewpoint. The modern viewpoint would say this, truth is found in reason. Truth no longer begins with God, but it begins with me. And it begins in my mind. And y'all who have taken philosophy, perhaps are familiar with Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. And he begins with this concept that I am and I think. And from there, he says, I can reason to the existence of God and I can absolutely prove everything I need to prove. And if I think well enough and clearly enough and long enough and hard enough, I will find the answers to every question. And that is the modernistic presupposition. And that's what guided our culture for about three or four hundred years, that truth is found ultimately in reason. Now, there are problems with that, right? Perhaps it underestimates the fact that we all live in certain cultural specifics. We all have different temperaments. We all have different families. We all have different backgrounds. And it underestimates the fact that those things genuinely affect how I think. It also underestimates the fact that we're fallen, right? Romans 1 talks about how our minds are corrupt. I can't necessarily perfectly reason my way into every answer. And what began to happen in the 20th century is a skepticism about a modernistic viewpoint, and we moved into what's called a postmodern viewpoint. Truth still begins with the I, but it ends with the I as well. Instead of saying I can reason my way to truth, what I say is, well, really, every religion, every belief, every morality is totally culturally determined that binds what I can think and what I can say. And so truth, absolute truth, cannot be found. Postmodernism was extremely skeptical about any claim that I have an overarching understanding of the world, an understanding of God, an understanding of how I ought to live. And it said any claim that you have an overarching understanding is arrogant and is an attempt to control others, so you cannot find truth. And they began to back off from the concept of truth altogether. And that is where we find our culture today. And you see this all over the place. Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, says this, no doubt soaring cathedrals, stirring music, moving stories and parables help a bit, but by far the most important variable determining your religion is the accident of birth. All right, so he's assuming if you're born here, you'll be a Christian. You're born here, you'll be a Muslim. You're born here, you'll be a Hindu, and there is no escaping it. What determines you is where you're born. 
Brad Pitt, on the other end of the popular culture spectrum perhaps, says, I'm probably 20% atheist and 80% agnostic. I don't think anyone really knows. You'll either find out or not when you get there. Until then, there's no point thinking about it. That's quite a risk to take, right? right, That's where our culture finds itself. And it's nothing that the scripture ultimately, I think, did not predict. Nothing that the scripture does not anticipate. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In other words, there's a time coming when everybody says, I want to believe what makes me happy, what tickles my ears. I don't want to listen to anybody else's teaching. And that's where we find our culture. Right? But the reality is this. Ultimately, no matter how you attempt to do it, you cannot escape the idea of truth. You cannot escape the idea of absolute truth. Right? Truth is absolutely inescapable. And here's why. The very fabric of our lives requires that we make some judgments about what is right and wrong about what is true and false, even in the realms of religion and morality. There is no person who has zero viewpoint. Right? Think about the major objections to Christianity or religions in general. First one might be this. All religions are equally valid. They all basically say the same thing. Right? They all have certain moral codes. They all talk about how I can know God. And so they'll say all of them are equally valid. Now, the problem with this is what? This person who's making this claim that they're all equally valid claims to stand outside of all religions as the supreme arbiter of them. I'm the one who knows what's correct. And this person has reduced all religion and said, what is essential about them all is what? Morality. And we live in a particular way and we're kind to people, but they still have a model for how they live their life. The problem is Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism They all have differing ideas of how I know God and how I achieve eternal life. And to them, they would say, this is what is critical about my faith. It's not just that I help an old lady across the street, as noble as that may be. But it is, how do I know God? And so by saying they all say the same thing, what I have done is erringly strip away the right of each religion to determine this is what's critical and this is what I say. And I have stood outside and declared myself to have the supreme view. The problem is that they all have contradictory views. I've been, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to Loch Ness in Scotland where uh, they, some people believe there's a large snaky-like monster that lives in this lake, right? They call it Nessie and there's little pictures of it that are taken, you know, that are real small and nobody's ever actually gotten a really good video except maybe something that looks like a little, you know, rubber ducky floating along the water, you know. But there are people out there. When I was there, there's this whole subculture devoted to Loch Ness lore about who Nessie is and does Nessie exist, and they promote the existence of it. Now, I don't believe that there's any large dragon monster in the lake, all right? But some of you may. Now, here's the problem. I, somebody standing outside could say, well, you're, you're really both saying the same thing. There's something there, right? Might be a stick, might be a log, might be a gigantic dinosaur. Okay? Now, the problem is we're not saying the same thing, are we? And if you come along and say we are, you've just insulted both of us. And you've created your own truth claim. And ultimately, you've made assumptions about the nature of reality. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, 
says this, skeptics believe that any claim to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes God is unknowable or that God is loving but not wrathful or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. Cannot get around the concept of making faith claims. Another objection is that all religion is merely a product of culture. Richard Dawkins is a classic example. He's an atheist and he says, well, all religions are just a product of your culture. Guess what, Mr. Dawkins? So is atheism. You go back 500 years, you will not find the classical, philosophical, rationalistic atheism that he claims to hold. It is a unique product of post-enlightenment, modernistic, Western culture. And so the claim that I can step outside and evaluate all these others is incorrect. Our culture, yes, does affect how we view life, but it is not binding completely on the way that we think. And it's not enough to lazily say, well, you know, culture just binds us, so we're not even going to think about it. I still have to have a viewpoint. I have to evaluate, all right? That takes us to the other major objection. Like Brad Pitt says, truth is just unknowable. Why, Why even bother? But even in that, he's got to make some standard for how he lives his life, what is right, what is wrong. You ask that person, is it okay to kill anybody for any reason? You know, C.S. Lewis puts it, cultures have differed over the centuries about whether a man could have one wife or four wives, but no culture has said you can have any woman at any time for any reason. We all have standards of how we live our lives. Maybe they're poorly thought out, or maybe we think about them. That's the only choice you have. I can have a worldview that I've not thought about. I can have one that I have thought about. You cannot escape the concept of truth. And that's why I think Jesus places truth claims right in the face of those that he's talking to and says, you must deal with the claims that I am making about who I am, right? Jesus in John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, if you listen to me, you'll know the truth, right? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to deal with these claims of Jesus Christ. Either they're true or they're false, or you could, I guess, argue that he never said it in the first place. We'll talk about that more next week when we talk about the Bible. But you have to deal with the fact that Jesus is not just saying, well, everybody be a nice guy and it'll all work out. He says, I am the way to the Father. You cannot avoid making a determination about whether that is true or whether that is false. John writes in 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, despite all of our limitations and our fallenness, there are some things you can know. Maybe not exhaustively. Maybe not everything. But I can know enough. If you come to me this afternoon while we are eating lunch and you say, Matt, I really think you need to eat more green vegetables, green beans, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, things along those lines, I may say to you, well, you're going to have to convince me. I don't like them, all right? Why? You say, well, they provide iron, calcium, uh, and I say, well, how do you know? Have you studied them? Have you put them under a microscope? Have you looked at them? Have you broken them down? Well, no. All right, what else do they provide? I don't know. Iron, calcium, good stuff. They're healthy for you. Well, do you know everything about Brussels sprouts? You say no, and I say, well, then you can't know anything. So, Get away from me with your Brussels sprouts, right? <laughs> right? That is essentially what our culture is attempted to do, is to say, well, if you can't know everything, if you can't be God, you can't know anything. 
And I say, no, I can. I can look at the evidence that is available to me. And I can know some things, right? I can listen to doctors who tell me that vegetables are good. I can look at my friends who eat vegetables versus my friends who don't and perhaps see a marked difference in their size and a marked difference in their health, right? And I say, I don't know everything about them, but I know enough to say, I know that they're good for me. It's good to eat them. And the same is true in matters of faith and morality and religion. I may not be able to know everything, but I can know enough by looking at the scriptures. I can know enough by looking at the world around me, as Romans 1 says. I can know enough to say, I am going to hitch my wagon to this idea. That Jesus is God. Truth exists definitely. It's inescapable. You have to make some sort of claims about it. And one of the questions I think that we wrestle with is, if that's the case, then why are there so many denominations and religions and all of these different beliefs about God? And I think scripturally we have a couple of reasons, all right? Why are there different belief systems? One is because we're fallen. Romans 1 tells us that uh, mankind naturally does not run toward God, but runs away from God. And over time, we get worse and worse and worse unless God intervenes. And what Romans 1 tells us actually is that other religions are not an attempt to draw near to God, but they're actually an attempt to run away. To create a God that I can manage, that I can control. And ultimately, everybody is condemned apart from Jesus Christ because we've tried to run away. We're fallen, right? And then we are also finite. Sometimes you have men and women that know Jesus Christ and they may differ on the meaning of a passage, on the way we should do church, or something along those lines. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a product of evil, It might just be that we don't know everything yet. But that's not an excuse not to seek truth. Scripture is very clear that we must deal with truth claims. Seek to determine what is true, what is false. You can't get around it. I think that follows then if there is truth, it demands a response. If there is truth, it demands a response. I had a professor in seminary that used to say, interpretation without application is abortion, right? And what he meant by that is, if I know all of these things and I don't apply it somehow to my life, then I've aborted the process of growing like Jesus Christ. I think it's the same thing. If I understand that there is truth and yet I allow it to sit in my mind and my heart and I do nothing about it, then I've aborted the process of Jesus Christ changing me to be more like his son, right? And so we have a response that we're called to. First response is this, to seek truth. To seek truth. Acts 17 talks about a group uh, called the Bereans. They were a group of men and women that when they heard the gospel, it says they studied intently the scriptures to determine if these things were true. I hope you guys study the scriptures intently. I would even say don't be afraid to study the world religions. Don't be afraid to study what our culture says about truth and seek truth wholeheartedly. There has been a move, I've noticed, even among Christianity in the last 10 or 12 years, to say, well, we don't want to spend too much time studying because that might really mess us up and make us not want to apply. And so we really need to just get out there and serve the poor and help the old lady and do stuff, but don't spend so much time thinking about truth. My response to that is a couple of things. First of all, Jesus himself emphasized preaching over healing. Sometime go look at Luke chapter 4. Verse 43, and Jesus says, I came here primarily not to heal, not to, not to meet physical needs, but to preach the truth. The other thing I would say is if I misunderstand truth, that affects my application. 
Let me give you an illustration. Ladies, suppose that after church today, one of these gentlemen asks you to lunch on Friday. And he asks you to lunch and you say, okay, I'll go. And then you walk away and suddenly you start thinking, was this a date? Or was this just a hangout? And you're not sure. What are you going to do? I know what you're not going to do. You're not going to go back and ask him, right? That's a ridiculous idea. You're not going to go back and ask him. What you're going to do is you're going to go back to your dorm room tonight, and you're going to call the Supreme Council together, aren't you? And you're going to analyze everything that he said. You're going to analyze the way he tilted his head, how often he blinked his eyes, right? where he's taking you. right? This is going to affect... What you do, isn't it? It's going to affect perhaps what you wear. It's going to affect whether you bring your money or not, right? It's going to affect your application. It's not enough just to simply say, well, you know what? I just need to go. You have to, you have to seek truth. Misunderstanding the truth affects your application. If we misunderstand who God is, who Jesus Christ is, what he wants from us, if I read the scriptures and I don't seek to really understand and know it, then the way that I act will be affected. So my challenge to you is passionately seek the truth. Open up the word of God. Get out a pen or a pencil or a marker. Mark it up and let it impact your heart and your life. Some of you in here, perhaps you're, you're not exactly sure what you believe about God and about Jesus And you've heard who Jesus is, perhaps, but you're not sure. My challenge to you this morning is uh, read the scripture. What it's going to tell you is that uh, what Christianity is fundamentally about is how we can know God and have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that all of us are separated from God by sin, and yet Jesus took the penalty of our disobedience on himself and rose again so we could have eternal life. My challenge to you is if you are not sure that you believe that, seek it out. Talk to a friend who does. And don't go another week without grappling with the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, it may be that you believe the gospel, and yet you need to spend some time actually seeking out what is the truth? How would God have me live? What would he have me do in light of who Jesus Christ is? My challenge to you is this. Study the scripture. There's a reason we have uh, Bible studies here at Grace where we are going to get you right into the word of God without a lot of extra leading questions. We want you to read the Bible. This semester, we're going through the book of James. There's not a more practical book in the New Testament than the book of James. So join one. Find a way in some context to learn about the word of God and then apply it to your life. Seek the truth, all right? And then the next response would be to proclaim the truth. Proclaim the truth. Paul urges Timothy to be a right handler of the word of truth, to accurately handle the word of truth and to proclaim it to others, and to gently correct those who are in opposition so that they might have a knowledge leading to the truth. A lot of times I think we're, just, we're afraid to proclaim the truth. We think we don't know enough or I have to know everything. What I would challenge you is, as you begin to study, as you begin to learn, take those opportunities to speak truth into the lives and hearts of those that you are around so that they may hear of, the, of Jesus Christ, even if it is not that you pull out a tract and share every point of the gospel every time you talk to somebody. Use your mouth, use your life to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. About a week or so ago, my wife and I took our uh, two-week-old son to a doctor's appointment. 
And while we were there, uh, we were talking to this nurse, and the nurse uh, was actually pregnant. And we began to just kind of chat, you know, and just questions you normally ask. And uh, uh, in the course of the conversation, I said, well, do you think that it's a boy or a girl? And uh, she said, well, you know, I, re- I really don't know. But she said, I, I, and she said, don't laugh at me, but I looked at these uh, Chinese birth charts, you know, that are online. And it says it's going to be a, a boy. And she goes, I, I don't know how accurate that is. But that's what it says, right? And, and at that moment, I, I wish I had said something like, you're a nurse, right? <laughs> you have medical training. It's not accurate at all, right? They're not taking your blood test over the internet, right? You're a nurse. The truth is that superstitions and rituals and magic are not going to answer the questions of your life. But the word of God is. Now, I didn't say anything like that, but I walked away and I thought, you know, it's interactions like that that I think we ought to become bolder about perhaps more gently than I just framed it, but speaking the truth, all right? Saying, you know, you want to know answers to your life. They come from Jesus Christ. So we seek to proclaim the truth. We live in a culture and in a world that needs the truth. Some of you are weighing what to do with your summer. Danny mentioned earlier in the announcements that we have an opportunity for some of you to go overseas. Right? There, there, is, there are places that we are going to where an incredibly small percentage of the nation has even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the countries we go to is similar in some respects to the United States in that they're very skeptical about truth claims. One of the countries we're going to, they believe in truth, but out of a country of 10 million people, about 500 believe in Jesus Christ. Imagine that there were two Christians on the entire A&M campus. That gives you an idea of the proportions. The world needs to hear the truth about who God is. And I would challenge you to devote your life to seeking the truth and proclaiming it. For the sake of the glory of God. So let's you and I, as we go out, as you continue school, as you interact with your family, as you interact with your friends, courageously and boldly proclaim the truth and seek to know it every day. Would you guys pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, those of us who know you and who know your son, Jesus Christ, we trust that it is true. Father, protect us from buying into the lie that we just can't ever know truth. Let us recognize that everybody will have some standards by which they arrange their lives. I pray that we would speak into others' lives and proclaim that, uh, yes, Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. God, I pray if there are any in here that are not convinced of that this morning, you would give them uh, the desire in their spirit, through your spirit, to seek that out. Bring each person here to a place where they trust in Jesus Christ alone. God, make us faithful with the truth we've been given. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. See you all next week.